The second Peter chapter two, we're going to look at verse five, one verse. The message is entitled, God judged the world of Noah. Now, Peter warned the believer about the false teachers that had crept into the church, bringing destructive heresies, uh, that God had bought them, but they denied him and they would be judged at the end. That's verse one through three. And then he uh, gives three examples of God's past judgments to be sure that the future judgment of false teachers is going to take place. The judgment of angels in verse 4, the judgment of Noah's world in verse 5, and the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in 6 through 8. We want to focus on Noah this morning. Let me read here verse 5. And did not spare um, the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. It's marked and described by three things. First, the proclamation of judgment, the first part. Then the salvation from judgment in the middle. And then the execution of the judgment, the last part. The proclamation of judgment comes first. It is God's proclamation. Peter here in the Greek grammatically, the structure um, confirms the ultimate judgment of these false teachers. Uh, first, by the first example, the rebellion of the angels. Uh, it's one long sentence, one of the longest sentences uh, uh, in the New Testament. It goes from verse 4 down to 9. And so the beginning clause is an if clause, a conditional clause, if the condition is met. And then, of course, you have that extends to all three of them in the Greek, the angels, uh, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. But he doesn't come to the conclusion of the false teachers until you get to verse 9. So he begins in verse 4 and he finishes in verse 9. If this is true, if this is true, if this is true, and God judge these, then the false teachers will also be judged. So no one will escape the judgment of God. And that's the whole point here. Three major past judgments that no one can deny. They can refuse them, they can disbelieve them, but they have taken place. And that's the important thing. And so God did not spare the angels, didn't spare the world of Noah, didn't spare uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. So he will not spare false teachers. I almost did on false teachers, but I want to focus on Noah this morning because it's one of the signs of the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, notice Peter then declared the second example of judgment here at Noah. And, and did not spare the ancient world. The conditional clause again, verse 4, also applies to the world of Noah. All three of them. God didn't spare, abstain, or hold back the judgment in the days of Noah. Uh, neither he will he for those false teachers, as we said. Now, the world of Noah is described in the, as the ancient world. Um, cosmos means the beginning. It's used 12 times uh, in, um, uh, in the old uh, King James Version. And it gets, brings us back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Borrow out of nothing. God created. Okay, that's the world that we're talking about. All right? Um, Noah was a descendant of Seth's line, as you know. If you follow the genealogy there, Seth was born fallen. But after the likeness and the image of God, still in Genesis 5.3. But because Adam had fallen, now every human being brings forth little sinners. Okay? No one produces perfect little kids. Okay, they're all sinners because they have some parents who are sinners. And um, the, the line goes through Seth because, of course, uh, Cain killed Abel. Noah was Enoch's grandson, we are told. Uh, and Enoch did not walk with God for 65 years, Genesis 5.21 says. So he was a total pagan. And he was very close to the evidence of God and the creation in the fall. Enoch walked with God uh, at the birth of his son, Methuselah. For 300 years, 
Genesis 5.22 tells us. So something happened at his birth. There were a son that he trusted the Lord. And Enoch walked with God, was not, and God took him in Genesis 5.24. So he has translated to heaven. He's one of two people who have never died. Now, Noah was Methuselah's grandson. Um, Methuselah was a living prophecy of the judgment to come. His name means when he dies, the end will come. So, without doubt, Methuselah died the very day of the flood because he was a warning to them by name. Methuselah was the longest living, 969 years. That's a heck of a long time. Okay, so there was longevity back then. Noah was also the son of Lamech. Lamech begot um, Noah at a ripe old age of 802 years old, Genesis 5.28. Can you imagine having a kid at 802? Um, so you can imagine how many sons and daughters they had. Okay? Uh, Lamech gave his son named Noah, which means rest, and he was a rest to the, to the fallen nature of man, and God would be bringing comfort through him to an extent, but people would reject it as we're going to see. And um, the result of uh, the fall was still fresh in the mind of Noah, though it was 1,056 years that had passed. Now, we're calculating all these years that I'm going to give you based on the fact that the genealogy that's there, if there are no gaps, and most people believe there are no gaps. Of course, the liberal commentators and and scholars don't believe that, but we believe it, it is uh, because it points to a young earth. Noah was the 10th generation from Adam, we are told. So Noah's father, uh, Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, as we are told. And uh, it's through them. And he got them um, uh, at the age of 500 years old. Uh, sometimes we see people having kids today at 55, 60, and we think they're crazy. Well, they're 500, 700, 800. Um, but again, longevity. Noah lived 950 years himself in Genesis 9.29. So you can imagine with that length of time how much information you contain and being closer to the stock, how much brilliant and how much better your mind is, okay? Uh, it, it, it's all in proportion. Now, Noah had first-hand knowledge then of creation, the fall, the murder of, uh, of Abel, and the taking up of Enoch. He knew all about that. Eight out of the ten generations were alive when Noah was born, except for Adam and Seth. Seth died 14 years before Adam or before Noah was born. So you can see just 14 years before Adam was, uh, before Noah was born, uh, Seth dies. So all that information and everybody else alive has that information and he just died. Um, again, the year that he died, if we calculate, it would be a... a 1042 or 1042 B.C. Uh, Noah was born in 1056 B.C. if we do the math there. Um, Adam died 930 B.C. Uh, Noah was born only 126 years after his death. So really the, the, the death and the overlaps are so close together because of the longevity. Uh, so therefore Noah had to have first-hand knowledge of every patriarch except Adam and Seth. But all others were alive with Adam and Seth so that the communication is easily translated. I remember speaking to my great-grandmother on my dad's side. She was born somewhere around 1850. 1850-something. When Mexico City. 
Um, so I remember talking to her. I can see her right now in her bed. Okay? And this is the year 2014. So when you look at the span that you cover in one generation, even in our lifetime, that's a heck of a lot of people, a heck of a lot of information. Um, Lamech, Noah's father, lived 56 years as a contemporary with Adam. Methuselah lived 243 years as a contemporary with Adam. Enoch lived 308 years contemporary with Adam. And Terah, the father of, uh, of uh, Abraham, was born 222 years after the flood. Genesis 11, 10 through uh, 24 tells us that. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. And Noah and Terah were contemporaries for 128 years. When we get to Terah, if we get the genealogy of Abraham, Terah begot Abram at 130 years, not the 70 that is, uh, seems to imply in Genesis 11:26, because Terah died at 205 years of age, and Abram left Haran at 75 years of age. If you subtract them, you get 130 years. The age of Terah at Abram's birth, which is 352 years after the flood, showing us that Noah died two years before Abram was born. Genesis 11:32 and 12:4. So it's pretty. I mean, it, it's all in the niche. There is not that far fetched. The number of generations that were alive and all the people had all this information. Um, again. I believe that there are no gaps. I believe God gives us a record of it. And if you look at it from creation or Adam to uh, Abraham, you have 2,000 years. From Abraham to Jesus Christ, you have two more thousand years. And from Jesus Christ to now, our lifetime is 2,000 years. You have 6,000. We know there's going to be a thousand-year millennial reign. That's 7,000. So the earth is really not that old. And the evidence that we'll see in some of the stuff that we'll look at does give to a young earth. Now, there's a lot of the, uh, uh, some uh, theistic evolutionists that are Christians, they say, they believe that God started and then he just let the natural law so they can fit another millions and billions of years and stick their dinosaurs here and there. The dinosaurs were here, but it's all within a recent time, okay? Uh, they died on the flood, okay? They didn't make it. So you don't need that. All evidence gives us that it's a young earth, not an old earth. Um, let me give you the, the proximity of, of Noah to Adam's death may be seen in a, uh, a bit long until you um, put a relationship to the lifespan of that time. The average lifespan of all 10 generations recorded in Genesis is about 857 years average. If you divide the 126 years of gap between Noah and Adam's death into the average age of 857, you get a ratio of 6.8 in proportion of the total of 857 years. Now, if you take 70 years to be the average of age today for a man, and you divide the same ratio, 6.8, into the 70, you come up with 10.2 years. So 
to get an accurate concept of the time separation between Noah and Adam, you, it would be as if your grandfather had died 10.2 years before your birth, yet your father had known him for 40 to 50 years and was able to communicate with you all that he needed to communicate. Now, we don't pass down much of our information because we are so far removed and so isolated today in culture. But in those days, they transferred everything down, records, and their minds were clear and everything like that, guaranteed. Even some cultures still pass down. The Jewish culture passes down their genealogies, different things. In, 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 in uh, Latin countries many times. My name is Javier Jose Riz de Peña de Fernandez. Okay? De Peña is my dad's line. De Fernandez is my mother's line. Riz is my grandpa from Germany. My dad's dad. So I know my tree. Okay? The majority of us Americans, we don't. We lose it once we come here. Okay? So cultures are a little different. Okay? Now, the days of Noah are assigned to the world of the soon return of Jesus Christ by the words of Jesus. Listen to what he says in Matthew 24, 37. He says, But the days of Noah, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And as we study Genesis and we look at all that, all the evil, the intent of man's thoughts, the imaginations, all that went on is desperately wicked. Genesis 6, 5, Jeremiah 17, 9. And we see it even today. Uh, those of us who uh, are at least uh, anywhere from 50 to 65, remember an America far different than today. We, knew, we remember when there was a stand, there was riot, there was wrong, there were consequences, there was order, and it has fallen apart very shortly. Um, today, the lack of value for life, morality, marriage, everything else, uh, is just gone by the wayside. It's like a slippery slope. The days of Noah were identified with specific things. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 38 through 39, For as the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Both of these texts that I've given you are the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus uses the days of Noah to, uh, to warn about the days of His coming. Worldwide, not regional, not national, but worldwide. They were eating and drinking, not in the ordinary sense of the word, which is legitimate, but gluttony, drunkenness, and, and, and promiscuous. We look at marriage and giving in marriage, meaning divorce and remarrying without the thought of commitment or that it's right or that it's wrong. And even today, if you look at the church, the church has passed up the world of marriages and divorces, okay? Now, some of you have come to Christ coming out of the world. You might have had three, four marriages and divorces, okay? We're not here to condemn you. Those are BC days. You're brand new. But it's people within the church that are marrying and, and, and divorcing, calling themselves Christians, which again, beats the world in that way. And a lot of that's going on, okay? They were doing this until the days that Noah entered the ark. It was life as usual. Today, people are living life as usual. No big deal. Oh, you Christians, you guys always say, Jesus, they've been saying this since my grandmother's day. Well, he's that much closer. The proclamation of judgment of the ancient world of Noah was from God, not from Noah. Notice, secondly, the salvation from judgment is given to us. But save Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. 
Peter declared, notice, the entire population of the ancient world of Noah was destroyed except for eight people. Now, that's hard to believe. But again, faith is because you depend on the word of God. The academic world, people who don't believe in God, they say, oh, that's crazy. And if, and if it is true, I don't want nothing to do with that God. If we kill all those people, they're probably good people. No, they're good for nothing. He's going to call them ungodly. And if you want to start with someone good, let's start with you. How good are you? Let's get serious here. The world isn't a terrible place because there's good people, isn't it? <laughs> the word but there is a contrasting conjunction. In other words, God destroyed them. He didn't spare them. Noah was the only one that was saved. That's a contrast. Because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, 8. Grace. He wasn't sinless. He wasn't perfect. But he wasn't ungodly. He stands in contrast to them. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But we're transformed. We're new creatures in Christ. We don't live the way we used to. Because the grace of God has touched us. We understand what God has done in our life. Noah was one of the eight individuals saved by the judgment. He tells us here. His wife, of course. And then his sons and their wives. Um, but... Um, uh, he was a preacher of righteousness, it says. A herald. A herald, you know, the word karuks here. Um, it's, it's one who was hired by the king or the state or, or, or somebody to make proclamations. Now, the message was not theirs. It was given to them. The authority was not theirs. It was vested to them. They were not responsible for the response, only for the proclamation. That's what you and I are. That's what Noah was. A preacher, a proclaimer of God's revelation, of his warning, of his judgment to come. I am not responsible for, it's not my message. I'm not responsible for your response. And the authority is not mine. It's God's authority. And God deals with the individual. I cannot convince you to repent. I cannot convince you to go to heaven. And neither will God. But God will convict you of your sin to try to show you your need of God. That you might agree with God that you need to be forgiven to be saved. But God will not force you to go to heaven. You have all the right to go to hell. But you don't have to go there. You can go to heaven. A preacher of righteousness. Righteousness deals with the horizontal. Right living with man. Godliness has to do with the vertical. And the only way I can be right with you is if I'm right with God. The problem is we're always trying to be right with each other without being right with God. As long as I'm not right with God, God doesn't hear me. I must be right with God. I must come through Jesus Christ. I must keep my accounts short. I must ask Him to forgive me. I must be in fellowship with Him. I must study His Word. I must be transformed from day to day, from glory to glory. I must look to Him and no one else. I cannot lean to my own understanding. I must acknowledge Him in all my ways. Notice, Peter declared what the prophets of old had accurately spoken and recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Noah witnessed the judgment of God. Back in Genesis chapter 6. He was there. He saw it all. The thing with your life if you're a Christian is. You were there when God messed you up for good. People may not believe it. They may not accept it. But they can't deny the change in your life. You were there. You were the first to know that you were saved. You were the first to know. That God did a work in your life. And the evidence is the years that you walk with God. That you're not living the way you used to live. 
You're not sinless. You're not perfect. But you don't live the way you used to. The human race had deviated from God's design. If you go to Genesis chapter 6 of marriage, there you have um, the uh, declaration that uh, God would wait only about 120 years. There's 100 years between Abraham, uh, with Noah from 500 to 600. So he gave this proclamation 20 years before initiating with Noah. So you've got 120 years. Uh, uh, and, and there you have uh, intermarrying maybe with... Uh, with, uh, with fallen angels in Genesis 6, very possibly, because we have here the association with Sodom and Gomorrah. And also in Jude, he makes that connection with the angels who went after strange flesh of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, angels are always male in form. There has never been one angel declared to be a female in Scripture. They always appear in a male form, Okay. Gabriel, Michael, there's no Michelle, okay? It's just the way it is. They're all, they're all male. And so it's very possible because of that statement there in chapter 6. And I want to get sidetracked on that, but um, um, that's a different study altogether. And so, um, but it grieved the heart of man there in chapter 6 because of all the things that are going on. And God drew a line. He says, this is far enough. And God is long-suffering. But he has a line individually and collectively for the human race that he will draw and has drawn. And once it's crossed, then God's judgment comes. Uh, 120 years shows God's patience. Peter speaks about that, the long suffering of God. He did that. Now, let me ask you a question. You, you let's say you were God and, and, and you're going to judge the world. And you know, you know that no one's going to get in this boat except for eight people. And you know that before you even tell him. Why would I want to wait 120 years? Get in the boat. Smoke him. Done. But he does it so he can never be accused of being quick to judge, of being impatient or unloving. And God has never brought judgment before giving sufficient time of warning for people to repent. Always. 120 years, that's a long time. You know, people in the world live apart from the Lord, and they do so proudly and boastfully, especially today. I don't care where you go or what you look at in TV or whatever. Everybody very brash about their looseness, their depravity, and their, their self-directiveness in life and all that, on whatever level they want to live. And... Um, but one day is not going to be so advantageous when they stand before God. Um, the uh, knowledge of, of the uh, membership role of the Nazi party was something that kind of came back to haunt many people. At one time, that list was about 8 million names. And it was found after the collapse of, um, of Germany and this was no joyful news when people understood that it had come into the hands of uh, all those who fought against Germany. Uh, these people were proud at one time to be members of the ruling party. Once it had meant power, prestige, and in many cases, extreme wealth. This master file had been the, in the key place of honor and authority for many of these who were on there. But now that it had been found after World War II, 
It meant sharp investigation, prison, and even for some, death. So today, people are proud to declare themselves atheists, agnostics, liberal, humanists. And you fill the category of other listings which they call themselves. But when they stand before God, it's not going to be a very happy day. Now, whether they believe that there's a judgment to come makes no difference. It's irrelevant. They're going to be the first to be shocked. And they'll first be shocked a thousand of a second after they take their last breath. As they find themselves separated from God in hell. Because that's where the Bible says people go that die without Christ. God doesn't say this with a smack of the lips or with some joy. But he says it absolutely and seriously to warn people. Lest they die in unbelief. Noah, the man of faith, divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. Hebrews eleven seven says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11, 1 tells us, Those that come to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Verse 6 of Hebrews 11 tells us. And so God told Noah that it was going to rain, and, and Noah never saw rain, but he believed rain, and he declared rain, and it rained. So for your faith to be biblical, it must come from the revelation of God. Not your tradition, not your opinion, not your hunches, but what has God said. And if you believe what God has said in His Word, then that is honored as faith. If your faith is not dependent and related to God's revelation, it's foolishness. It's worthless. It means nothing. He moved with fear. Noah, as a man of faith, also prepared the ark for the saving of his household. He believed it so much that he first declared to his family what a responsibility it is to us all that first of all, our wives, our husbands, our children, our grandchildren, our nephews, whatever it is, our immediate family, and, and the circle just goes out, the friends and, and loved ones. Um, the ark was not for the people necessarily. God knew they were not going to accept. But for Noah with all the animals. And he speaks about bringing in two and by sevens. Two of the unclean, seven of the clean because he would offer sacrifice. There's no contradiction. The presence of the ark spoke of the judgment of God to come. Um, it was a, 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 a judgment against the world. Just the very presence of the ark. You are a judgment to people who reject the gospel by what God has done to your life, you are a witness present in this world that God exists. The condemnation or judgment of the world was not Noah's doing. It was the rejection of the light that God had given to them because men love darkness rather than light, John 3.19 says. Darkness pulls me. Darkness pulls you. Still as a non-believer in nature. But I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus, so I, I, I'm born into warfare. I put on the armor. I do good warfare. I resist. I depend on the Lord. I cry out to Him. And I yield my life to that He may live through me by His grace. Noah, as a man of faith, became heir of the righteousness according to faith. And Hebrews eleven seven still says, Noah became the representative of righteousness. 
But people hate righteousness. People hate you being moral. People hate you telling about God. People want you to be corrupt and dirty, cochinos and all that today. They do. They love it. They love it. That, they, they, they like it. The TV. I mean, we used to have channel 2, 4, 5, 7, 9, 11, and 13. Seven. We had entertainment. Today you got 300 channel, 500 channel, and it's trash TV. Horrible. Crazy. Noah was named as an intercessor by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14, 14, and 20, along with Daniel and Job. And he says, if these guys were here, they'd only deliver themselves. That's how bad the elders were of Israel there in, in Babylon. An intercessor. Are you an intercessor for those around you? I've told you about my friend Joey Hernandez. When me, Joey, and, 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 and Joe, Pastor Joe Salias, we ran around the world, um, we're always together. Joe and I got saved. Joey did not. Forty years later, when I buried his mom two years ago, he came to the Lord. For 40 years, I visited him. For 40 years, I prayed for him. It's Joe and all of us. For 40 years, we were there as a witness, and he looked at our life. How long have you been praying for people? Have you given up after three, four years? Do you think my husband's beyond reaching, my wife, my cousin, my whatever? I hope not. No, somebody didn't give up on you. Somebody was praying for you. Someone looked to you to reach you. And that's always the case. And today there's such a great opportunity because the world is so desperate, so, so deceived that the light must shine in a greater way today. A hundred years. What a witness. He interceded. And so we are to do that for godly repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The godliness of repentance, meaning there's a change of life. Not the repentance of the world, which brings forth death. We experience that all the time. Remember going out on the weekend, doing something stupid, having some crazy consequences? And you said, I will never do that again. Next weekend, you're there again. What happened to I'll never do that? We don't learn. After the tears are gone, we're back at it again. The salvation from judgment was... By repentance, believing the revelation of God. There's no other way apart from repentance. Not joining a church, not just doing good things, thinking that that's going to take care of you, but having a transformed life through repentance. Now notice third and last here, the execution of the judgment. Bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Peter describes the method of the judgment that God brought in the world of Noah, a flood. Noah was to escape the judgment and um, build this ark. Uh, the specifications, uh, we just finished in our Wednesday morning study. We're here in this passage in chapter 6. It speaks about the ark being 450 feet long, uh, a cubit about 18 inches from the finger, middle finger to the elbow. Um, the... Uh, Ark was to be 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Three decks, 15 feet each. A window all around the top. You need some ventilation. You're going to have a lot of animals in there. Um, and uh, the ark, the volume, uh, comes out in cubic um, feet to a million four hundred thousand. It's equivalent to 522 box cart of railroad carts. Um, uh, it's it's a, a, lot of, a lot of space. Now remember, he took two of of the um, unclean and seven 
of the clean because he offered up sacrifices, okay? So that makes a difference. There's no contradiction. There's plenty of room. He didn't take full-blown animals in terms of big, not probably smaller ones, whatever it may be. God's in control. They came into Noah. Noah didn't go chase them down. It is very clear, very detailed how God did this. He brought them into the ark. And it stood as a witness for 100 years. Now, as, a, as the world is looking around, they're looking at the ark, they're looking at Noah, they're looking at these animals coming in, you know, and the message is going out, you know, and even though they're seeing the evidence, they're still rejecting it. Well, the world is saying, they see you, they see how you live, they see how I make decisions, they see what happens here, and, and they, they keep on living like they do. The parallel is the same. Now, Noah was to know that God was making a covenant with him in Genesis 6 also. It tells us that God would bring in the flood. And again, it would be miraculous because it would rain for 40 days for 40 nights. The subterranean waters would gush up also there in chapter 7 and everything. And um, um, probably the earth didn't have uh, uh, big mountains at that time because of the evidence that we have geologically. Um, and the, the fountain of the deep also broke open because remember only a small mist watered the garden. It wasn't until the flood that rain came down. So you have 40 days of torrential rain. You have the bottom subterranean water breaking up. So the, the earth breaks up the crust going up. Mountain ranges are being pushed up. Valleys are being depressed with the weight of water and landmass, the signs of isostasis, the, the balance of that. And all these subterranean bases being made, being filled, and all of that. And all that evidence is all around us. And in spite of that, we deny that it was a flood. Noah was told by God when to enter the boat. Noah went into the boat and God shut him in. He shut the door. God said when it was over. And so he took the animals, he took the food, he took everything in there. And then um, it says that God caused that ark to rise above the highest peak, 22 and a half feet, which is exactly the draft to the proportion of that ship in the water. You guys who are engineers, mathematicians, do the math. It's amazing how exact the record is. Noah contemplated the judgment as he's in the boat in chapter 8. And he's looking around and he sees God's mercy. He sees God's grace. He's looking around. He sends a dove out and he waits till they come back, you know, because there's no land. He sends them out again. He gives us the specific days there. They finally come back. He stands. He's in the boat. The waters uh, recede. Um, the ark first rested on Mount Ararat, we're told. On the first day of the seventh month in Genesis 8, 4 through 5. And so we opened the door and again sent the dove and uh, also a raven out. And uh, the dove comes back. He sends them out again. He comes back with an olive leaf and demonstrating that there was also a starting to recede in terms of the waters and the landmass being shown. And um, one year and ten days from the day that it began to rain... That's when the mark is given to us in Genesis 7, 11. So if you look at the, at the calendar of the flood, it is a 360-day year. How many degrees in the circle? 360. 
Probably the 23rd and the 3rd tilt happened during the flood, which gives us the off-center, which gives us the Gregorian calendar, okay? Also gives us the season. Perpendicular, probably more water vapor in, 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 the, in the atmosphere to keep the bombardment of neutrinos and radioactive stuff and all of that bombardment that goes on today and gives us skin cancer. Um, and all of a sudden, that's done away with. And now the tempestuous wind, stuff like that. So you've got the evidence all around us. And God told Noah to come out of the ark in chapter 8, verse 15 through 19. And so he brings the animals out. He sets everything up. He offers sacrifice unto God. And when you get to chapter 9, God tells Noah now. He gives them the first government as he gets off the boat. And he tells them that now the earth is going to be popular again. The second chance by Noah's uh, and his family, right? Did it get any better? No. Noah planted a vineyard, got drunk, laid there naked, and the sun mocking him, and started all over again, right? But he says there that now man could eat meat. There in chapter 9. That now all of a sudden man could eat meat. Now man's Life is required at the blood of any man. Capital punishment. This is given right after the flood. And it's very clear there. Now, if you're a vegetarian, I have no problem with that. If you say that it's biblical and only biblical to eat vegetables, then I do have a problem with that. The problem is not the food we eat in itself. The problem is what man has done to the food we're eating. All the stuff they're doing to the animals, the shots they're giving them, the grain that they're giving them, the GMOs, and all the stuff they're doing to the milk and everything else. That's why we have so much cancer, okay? So now everybody's going on natural, you know, everybody's catching it, so everybody's jumping on it. But, you know, people are liars. They'll sell you stuff that they say is organic, it's not organic. You got to check everything out. You got to make your choices. You can't get rid of everything. You can make some choices, but... You know, uh, if you want to push vegetarianism and think that that's the only way, I'll remind you that God killed a whole world of vegetarians, okay? Um, <laughs> so keep that in mind, all right? You can't have one without the other. And so Noah communicated to all men uh, to, that, that all men died and not one was left just as the record is. Uh, so Noah is the third longest living man on record, 950 years. Noah lived for 58 years as a contemporary with Abraham, no doubt communicating the judgment of God himself. He knew everybody except Adam and Seth. That is Noah. And he was a contemporary, again, 58 years with Abraham. So disseminating and giving the information is not difficult. Not difficult at all. Daniel Webster, a famous American politician and orator, once um, spent a summer in New Hampshire, and every Sunday he went to a little country church morning and evening. And his niece asked him why he went there. And um, when he paid little attention to some of the great preachers in Washington. He replied, quote, In Washington they preached to Daniel Webster, the statesman, but this man has been telling Daniel Webster the sinner of Jesus of Nazareth. This is what's lacking 
in the pulpits of America today. This is what's lacking, and this is not boasting, this is not arrogance, it's just fact. This is what's missing in the majority of pulpits in Pasadena. That the proclamation of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ and the word of God is not exalted and proclaimed. And that's why people are so messed up around us. The fall of our culture, the fall of our nation, the fall of society has its primary fall from the pulpits of America. They're offering a watered-down gospel, a politically correct gospel to not offend anybody. Despite the flood stories that exist around the world in the various cultures, modern man refuses to believe um, the biblical record. And yet, around the world, New Guinea, Brazil, Cuba, Mexico, Alaska, Hawaii, India, China, and many others have records of a worldwide flood. Where'd they get it? In 1845, tablets of cuneiform inscription were found in the city of Nineveh, 20,000. In 1872, George Smith of the British Museum was translating them, and he, he came across a tablet that paralleled the account of the flood in many ways, one of many. The ark has been um, attested uh, throughout history. Um, Barossus, the historian from Babylon, wrote about the flood in 275 B.C. Josephus attested to the relics of the ark. 1935, the Russian aviator um, photographed the ark from the air. An expedition was dispatched, by the, but the evidence was lost during the Bolshevik Revolution. This is all documented. The ark has been noted by satellite impressions, 1973, 76, 90, 92, and I'm sure other years from that point on. There have been men who have gone up there. Fernando Navarro, I believe, has gone up there. I touched the ark. He's given some evidence, some wood, stuff like that. But it seems that every time an expedition goes up, storms happen. God doesn't want it discovered. He wants to know what's there, but he doesn't. And by the way, if they brought it down, would that make you a believer anymore? If they brought it down, people say, okay, so what? They would want something else. We believe by faith, not by what we see. We believe the record of God. That's how we're saved, not because of the evidence. The geological column was formed rapidly, one layer immediately after the other. Those of you who are in college and universities, uh, you go through all the evidence in your oceanography classes, your geology class, all that. It's all fabricated. It demonstrates catastrophe, one layer after the other. Not the uniformitarian theory that they propose to you, which explains for millions and billions of years and gives that tolerance. The fossil record in the sedimentary deposits is further evidence of rapid burial. If they were gradually laid on, they would have decay and erosion. But they're preserved because it was one after the other, right on top of each other, the compression. And that's how you make fossils, by the way. Instant burial, okay? Um, the different types of sedimentary rock, as well as uh, igneous and metamorphic rock, give strong evidence that they could uh, never have been produced by the uniformitarian process that they propose. 
The geological column is a fabrication that is only seen in the textbooks. Very neat, very colorful, very exact. You don't find that if you dig down in the earth like that. Nowhere do you find it like that. The geological column, again, is a, is a big lie. Uh, it cries out cataclysm, instant burial, judgment, not evolution. We live over a graveyard. All the evidence is beneath us of God's judgment. But because men don't believe in God, they have distorted the evidence to say something completely different. The receding um, water runoff from the mountain ranges into the valleys of the oceans brought about fine balance of water and land called isostases again, lifting up the land mass and the waters. Uh, this is true of the geological structure of the mountains, the canyons, the alluvial uh, plains that you see in the mountains, like the Grand Canyon. Uh, the, when you sit there and they say, well, see that river down there, that made it. Do you really believe that? Let's get with it. Impossible. The Andes, the Himalayas, and others were thrust upward in cataclysmic deluge by the breaking up of the Earth's crust and the subterranean water. Volcanic activity, the magma comes up. You can just imagine the turbulence and the, and the horrific. We, we've had Mount St. Helen, that alone. Destroyed much of the ideas of, uh, of evolution. It, they dated the stuff. It said millions of years. It was just recent. And, and, and the, the amount of, of ash and the amount of moving material, all of that. Many of the highest mountains have evidence of human habitations of working the land. But now they're higher than the timber line. That means they were pushed upward. They were a lower elevation. This is fact. The Himalayas, the Andes, the Appalachians are recently young formations. The Sierra Nevadas are still rising, though it is only a fraction of an inch a year. Sedimentary strata and sea life are found on the highest of every mountain, the peak. How to get up there? Christians plot all the sedimentary strata up there? On all the mountains of the world? All over the world, interior lakes and seas show evidence of much higher water levels in the recent past. Rivers everywhere show that once they carry much greater quantities of water and sediment than they do today. Just fill up a tub, pull the plug. <laughs> it scars the land. It makes canyons, crevices. The destruction of power of water is amazing. A storm in the Sangiro Valley here in 1980s eroded and deposited about 100,000 cubic yards of debris from each square mile of the watershed. Mount St. Helens again taught us what one little volcano can do. One of the greatest volcanic mountains formed in the earliest of the flood was Mount Arad, along with other uh, in Armenia. Uh, it stands at the height of 17,000 feet of what is known pillow lava, dense lava rock formed under water depth and then pushed up. 17,000 feet lava? Yeah, it had to start underwater. The only way pillow lava can be made. So what do you say about that? Those of you who believe in monkey man. 
the psalmist describes this activity. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. Psalm 104, 6-9. The scriptures are full of God's destruction. Universal, not a local flood. Mammoths up in Siberia. Frozen, solid, standing. You have to have an instant freeze. A big animal like that going to stick around. Okay, I'm going to wait till I'm frozen. You're not going to do that. We have forested areas in the poles. Petrified wood, that's where we get a lot of our oil reserves. That means they were very lush at one time. Where'd they come from? How'd they get frozen so deep? Give that to your professor. Too bad I was a pagan in college. <laughs> Knowing the judgment on the ungodly is an affirmation, ladies and gentlemen, of sure judgment. First for the false teachers in the context of Peter, but second of all for the world. God takes no delight in judgment. But it's clearly understood that God will judge and there's only one way to avert judgment through repentance. Believing God's word. Repenting from our sins. Believing the record of God that I, I, I am the greatest enemy of God. Your pastor rotten to the core without Jesus Christ. And that I deserve God's wrath. And it's only the grace of God that saved me. And it's only the grace of God that keeps me. And it's only the grace of God that gives me the desire to be able to minister to those that were just like me. Because in my natural state, I just say, let them go to hell. You care less. And I say that sometimes. And God says, really? I'm sorry, Lord. We all go through it. We get tired of people. But aren't you glad God didn't get tired of you? Man. See, that's what the gospel does. The gospel convicts you. The gospel causes you to see who you are. The gospel causes you to be more like Christ. It's not all pie in the sky. It's not all, you know, I'm walking around throwing tulips all the time. That's not what it's about. Sometimes I want to throw rocks. But again, the gospel keeps chipping away at us. That's why we stay in the word. That's why we stay in prayer. That's why we stay in fellowship. That's why we don't water the gospel down. Because the only hope for you and the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Nothing else will do. Everything else is deception. Absolute deception. A refusal to repent by believing God's word leaves no escape, only judgment. Wow. The execution of the judgment is a warning of the coming judgment of God. Noah is a monument. The flood is a monument. The ark is a monument. All the evidence beneath us, the archaeological evidence of the flood, the judgment is a witness against our unbelief. And God will respect your choice, whatever that might be. But he sure would like you to repent and go to heaven. He'd love to forgive you and make you brand new. Give you hope. Show you what life is really about. Hmm. And so the second example of God's past judgment over the world. The days of Noah. The proclamation of judgment was from God. The salvation from judgment was by repenting. Believing the revelation of God. And the execution of the judgment is a warning of the coming judgment of God. And so, don't grow weary. Pray. Be a witness. And warn people. The Lord is coming first for us. But then the Lord's coming back in judgment. Lord, thank you for your grace and love. We thank you for your grace, your goodness. We pray you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray for every person that's here. And Lord, those who are over the internet, you would speak to their hearts if they don't know you. We pray that they would open their heart to you and you would just save them, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved to repent of your sins. He says he will cast your sins as far as he says the west. He will give you eternal life and he will make you his child by grace through faith because you believe what he says about you, that you're a sinner in rebellion against God. But if you believe Jesus died in your place, then he says he will make you a new creation. It's through repentance. This is a prayer of repentance. You want to ask the Lord to save you? Maybe you're over the internet. You can say that right now, right where you sit. And he will do exactly that right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.